G'day everyone, my name is Tom Craig and you're listening to my podcast, The Help Side, where we speak to some of the most recognisable names in world hockey and get an insight into who they are, what they're about and what makes them tick. Now if you like what you hear, feel free to follow our socials at The Help Side on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'd absolutely love that. Now this week we've got our first special edition Help Side and by that I mean technically our interviewer is not actually a hockey player. That being said, listeners of the show will know that he's already been a fixture of the help side. And it only seemed fitting that we get John Eels on the show to give us his side of the story that Mick McCann told us about that night after the Kookaburra's gold medal win in Athens. Without any shadow of overstatement, John Eels can rightly be called one of Australia's greatest sporting heroes. Between 1991 and 2001, John represented Australia's rugby union team, the Wallabies, in 86 test matches and was captain for 55 of those. He went to three World Cups, and in winning two of those, John played a role in establishing the Wallabies of the 90s as one of Australia's most successful sporting teams, and has become known as one of Australia's most successful sporting captains ever. When it comes to Aussie sporting icons, it really doesn't get much bigger. John has been inducted into the International Rugby Board Hall of Fame, the Australian Institute of Sport Hall of Fame, the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, and the Rugby Australia Hall of Fame. He's also been awarded an Order of Australia medal for his contribution to rugby and, to cap it all off, even the medal awarded annually to the best rugby player in Australia is named after him, the John Eels medal. This morning, I was lucky enough to sit down with John over a cup of tea and a coffee and discuss some of the highs and lows of his sporting career and what it took to elevate that Wallabies team to legend status. In this interview, you'll hear John's account of his dealings with hockey over the years, as well as a slightly different perspective of the Olympic Games that of an Olympic athlete liaison officer. With his trademark humility, John talks about dealing with pressure as both an athlete and a captain, and what separates the great teams from the good. Finally, having been involved with rugby during the transitional period between amateur and professional, we discuss some of the challenges that brings, and where hockey might learn from the experiences of rugby union, should it follow similarly down that path. This is the help side of John Eels AM. Please enjoy. A huge pleasure of mine to be sitting with uh, a, a different guest today, not a hockey player, but um, one of the greats of Australian sport, John Eels. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure, um, Tom. My podcast is called The Help Side, by the way, so you're our first non-hockey guest of The Help Side. And you've actually featured on the show before. Uh, Mick McCann spoke a couple of weeks ago about some of the things you got up to in Athens on, the, on when they won their gold medal. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about that Athens game and um, and what it was like from your perspective and, and that night in Athens. Yeah, look, I think, I still say, you know, a lot of people say, well, what's the best sporting event you've been to? And if I was to take my own sport out of it, take rugby out of it, because, yeah, that would be in the top, top few places, I would think, some of the things I've been to and seen and been involved with. But outside of that, that uh, Kookaburra's win that night in Athens is, is probably the night of sport or the event of sport that I enjoyed the most. I was just in the crowd that day, but I'd had a little bit to do with the Kookaburras in the lead up and you know, I spent a bit of time with some of the guys and with Barry Dancer and, and Batchy as well, you know, and the coaching staff among some of the, you know, the, the, the rest of the management. And so I felt I'd got to know them a bit, the, the guys, and I'd really enjoyed working with them and loved watching their work ethic, loved watching the way that they... You know, prepared for these, uh, you know, for this whole tournament, and they had never won a gold medal, uh, had come so close so many times. So you knew there was that sense that it was a really special occasion. Um, and then when it was all drawn at full time, well, first it probably should go back actually because first there was people getting on the bus to go out to the hockey stadium, and not everyone had their accreditation. I had my Infinity Pass, which was good value. And so I could get in, but I think out of the probably 50 or 60 people on the two buses that went out, I think maybe six or seven had a official accreditation. <laughs> and uh, we were led by the great Laurie Lawrence, and he uh, suggested that he'd be able to talk his way in. There was one security guard there. Uh, I think um, he started to talk his way through, and the guy's saying, no, no, no. And so he just gestured to, for everyone to, to run. And so everyone just ran in and, and in, dispersed around the stadium. And it was quite funny. Um, 
And uh, so, yeah, look, I remember the game, drawn at full time. And I was actually expecting that there would be a full lot of extra time played. Mm. So when we scored the goal, uh, when <laughs> Jamie scored the goal, uh, I thought, oh, that's great. You know, got the lead here, but they've got to focus. And I thought, oh, look, they're actually getting a bit too excited here. They've got to get back and concentrate. But then someone said, no, it's a golden, golden goal. And, and so I realized that they'd won, which was pretty special. Mm. And then I managed with, uh, I think it was with James Tompkins, we, we found our way to the, to the shed, you know, a bit sheepishly, because you don't want to um, you know, jump in on someone else's celebration. But, yeah, the, the guys invited us in and, and uh, yeah, then realized that they didn't have enough to celebrate with. I think there was only one or two bottles of champagne and maybe a couple of beers. So... I went looking for um, went looking for some more. And can I ask how you secured? Because it? it was two cases of beer, wasn't it? It was two cases. So it uh, they used to shut up the hospitality pretty quickly in in Greece in Athens. And I remember going to one uh, event section, and they were shut down. They didn't have anything. Went to another. I think it might have been the second or third that I went to there was one guy left there and I said, mate, there's a team down there. They've just won the gold medal. It's the first time that the Kookaburras have ever won this Olympic gold medal and they've got nothing to celebrate with. And he said, oh, no, no, sorry, we've got nothing. And I could see that they did have some beers in the fridge. And so I said, I had no money on on me or nothing substantial. There was no taking a credit card or anything like that. So I was thinking, well, what do I have? And literally all I had was the shirt on my back and it had Australia on there. And I said, would you swap, would you swap this for some beer? And he, he said, oh, okay. And I said, well, it's two cases. <laughs> and so I gave him my shirt and, uh, and he gave me two cases of beer. And then I had to walk through the stadium back around with two cases of beer and I brought them in. And, and, uh, but I was shirtless and, and Troy Elder, Gave me his his warm up top, which I've still got, mm. uh, and um, yeah, so that 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 was very good and um, great memento for the for the occasion for me. Brilliant. Troy missed his shirt from then on, I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> no, it was good and I was able to to share a drink with the boys. Brilliant. I have to ask with the I've heard the Laurie Lawrence story a few times. Everyone just makes a break through the gate. What happens after? I mean, like, it's as if you got in and then, then it's like a safe zone. No one can kick you out. You're completely fine. Or do you have people hunting you down? Uh, well, there was mainly just the one guy there. <laughs> like, literally. It was because there was a number of gates around the place. And this was... It must have been the athlete's entrance. Mm. And and so um, there weren't as many people. And, and it was basically right on the... Almost at the start time of the game. So... Mm. So I think there wasn't as much activity. And once people got through and they kept going through and through and through, <laughs> they just dispersed through all parts of the stadium. And uh, I go, look, I can't remember. I, I, I presume not all of it was you know, designated seating. So they just found their way around. And after that, no one got kicked out. Mm. Look, you could not do that these, these days. No you just couldn't do it. And um, Athens is probably one of the last places you could do something like that. Mm. It's definitely a great Australian Olympic story. Um, so you got in with your Infinity Pass, with which you mentioned, um, but that you had in the capacity of being an athlete liaison officer in Athens. That's a very different role. It's, a, it's an interesting role. Um, obviously, with the Kookaburras, you were attached to that team. But I'm interested in when you were attached to that team, did you feel something special was brewing beforehand? Did you? Was there a sense that they were on for that game? Or Yeah, look, there... There definitely was that sense, and I had the the opportunity to meet with the team in a in a couple of lead up games that they had in Sydney, and uh, they were playing against South Africa, and it was the first hockey I really the first serious hockey I'd I'd watched, and I I grew to love it, and and still to this day love watching a game, and yeah, just because I wasn't exposed to that mm. growing up, and mm. my my sports were were cricket and rugby, played a bit of golf and stuff like that, so I hadn't because you're so busy and immersed in those, you don't always get to see a lot of others and you watch a bit at the Olympics, but mm. you're probably mainly watching the, yeah, you know, the major rounds a lot of the time. And, uh, so I had the opportunity to go along and, and watch a game and sit next to some of the guys and really get to understand what's happening, why things were happening. And, 
And so I did, they made me feel very welcome in that environment. And as the athlete liaison officer in that role, I suppose there's a few different ways you can handle it. You can either be quite um, forward and pushing yourself on the team. And that's certainly not my style. My style was more sit back, talk, be available when, when people want you to be available. And Barry and and the leadership group of the team were really good at just inviting me in at different stages, asked me to speak to them a couple of times, or you might just have the opportunity to speak to different coaches or different different athletes in the team. And so it was a great um, great honour really to be involved. And as I said, I, I didn't push myself onto it, but it was you know I really felt welcome mm. and a you know, very small part of it, which, mm. which was which was great. Mm. You went to three Olympics as an athlete liaison officer. You would have seen a lot of, um, worked with a lot of athletes, some successful, some unsuccessful. Was there any discernible difference that you can think of in reflection that would indicate that they were going to achieve or they weren't going to achieve insofar as maybe the pressure or... Because it's a tough environment, obviously. Yeah, but very, very tough in environment, Tom. And I think you... I suppose the first thing is to understand what does success mean for that athlete? Because the podium is not necessarily success. Like for some, a bronze is losing. And for some, a bronze is is an absolute victory. Mm. And for some, they know they're not going to get on anywhere near the podium. So it's just how they, they... It's the experience of it all and getting out there and being at their best. So you, you were... Like in the, in the role, you were dealing with people you know, through that whole spectrum and, and some were seeking you out before... They competed. Others were seeking you out after they competed, and sometimes you're a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes you were just, you know, someone who could help clear ahead before a um, or, or give a specific focus before they had something, you know, whatever it was that they were doing. So, I think just being prepared to be a little bit of all of that, mm. um, as and when needed. And you certainly, my experience in in a team sport, my experience as a as a leader in in that team sport environment. I think was was pretty useful for some where they could relay relate to what you're talking about mm. and the experiences that they were going through, mm. um, and some really interesting ones. Like I sort of look back and think, Damon Kelly was you know a weightlifter, and actually being there, you know, going to training, and and Deborah Lovely was another weightlifter for for Australia, and and just being there in the back room as they're preparing to go out there on stage to lift in an Olympic Games mm. was an extraordinary experience. Like I used to love watching the weightlifting, you know, when I was, you know, even, even to this day. Mm. But being in that back area when they're, they're preparing and, again, not imposing yourself and just waiting to be called in to help where you can, but it was fascinating. Mm. You know, I really learnt an enormous amount from that environment. Can you tell us a bit about that? What's it like? In the background, because in we the background, see them come out and lift thousands of kilos. What's that? Yeah, look, I, I think it's it, it's different. This is where, as an athlete, you'd understand that everyone has their own way of preparing, mm. and everyone has their way of getting themselves to that optimum level of arousal. So, you're looking around. You, you're very you're conscious of the privilege you have, and you don't want to you don't want to interfere with anyone. But there are individual spaces, and you look across the room, and you see some people that are. And you remember back to your football days, some people had to be super psyched to, you know, to get out there and do their best. And some were really calm and, mm. and, uh, you know, in that, in that process. So I, I suppose it was understanding the athlete that you were with and knowing what they wanted and trying to be that for them. Mm. Um, which generally wasn't very much, mm. you know, because they had their coaches and the last thing you wanted to do was interfere and, create an environment that was different for mm. them mm. Uh, to take them out of the, you know, how they prepared. So, but they wouldn't have invited me in if they were concerned about that or concerned about my personality in that environment. So, sure. but it was, it, it was fascinating to just see the way that they would mentally prepare to do something that was such a physical challenge. Mm. Mm. Very cool. I'm going to, talk about you a little bit now um, and your career obviously you had a lot to offer as an athlete liaison officer but you achieved a fair amount on the field as well um, we've had uh, on this podcast before a few hockey roots from that golden 1990s era um, and I think it's fair to say that two of the great Australian sporting teams 
both existed in that era. One was the hockey roos and another one was your wallabies. Um, and I just want to talk about the difference between good teams, which of which there are many, and the great teams of which there are very, very few. Is there a clear difference between those two? And in your experience, what is it? I think it's a it's it's the fine margins between those two because physically there's probably not that much difference mm. between the good and the great um, teams. Look, I mean, there, there will be some great players, but I sort of look at uh, I look at the Wallabies and our our development through that period of time. And I was fortunate; I came into a team that was almost at the at the top of its game. Uh, they'd been through some really tough times. And I came in at 1991 and it was a World Cup year and they had just had a breakthrough win over New Zealand the, the year before, but they were quite inconsistent. Mm. And then, But they started to develop this consistency and then we had a great year, won nine out of the ten test matches, including the World Cup uh, final against England, but um, only lost one game to New Zealand by, by three points that, that, that year. And then I was part of that team that was very good for a number of years and then we went down as, as there was a bit of a changeover, a change in the guard of the players. A few people, key players probably had injuries. And then 95 World Cup, for all the reasons 91 was brilliant, 95 was so disappointing mm. because we had potential and we just weren't able to turn that potential into into performance at the, at the time. So, and then we came, 96, I became captain and we had some really tough years. Like we won some good games. We couldn't beat the All Blacks. We were very inconsistent. We were scraping home in games against teams that we should have been probably beating by a bit more. Uh, we did some really good things, but but as I say, we, we were inconsistent. But I look at the, the, the team, and then at the end of 1997, Rod McQueen took over as coach. And Rod was outstanding. Some people say, look, he was more a manager than a coach, but yeah, that's so far from the truth because he had this deep... Uh, understanding of what it took to play rugby. And and he got people around him. He created a team of people around him who were were better than him in different areas, different parts of the game. And he was not threatened at all about that. In fact, he embraced that. But he was still on top of everything and driving the, the, you know, the whole outcome as well as some of the, the, you know, the pieces of that outcome. But what was interesting, I think, I always often reflect on is that no one who ended up playing in the World Cup final in 1999 debuted for the Wallabies after 1997. And, and so in 1997, at the time where all these people would have debuted already, we were considered one of the worst Australian teams ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had had just suffered the test match before Rod McQueen took over. Um, was a test in Pretoria in South Africa. And it was the biggest score ever against the Wallabies. Uh, wasn't the biggest margin because the year before we'd done that against the the, the Kiwis. So there was these, um, yeah, we had records that you don't want to have uh, on your watch. And but yet all the players that were playing, so the players didn't all of a sudden get more talented. Uh, in some ways, I, I don't think they actually got more passionate. Mm. Um, because they were incredibly passionate, but we just weren't winning. We just weren't very good. <clears throat> but they did get more experienced and and they were very much guided to say, okay, this is your talent. This is the talent of the team. Mm. How do we build a winning strategy using that talent? And so I think it's not necessarily the physical capability um, of those people, but it was definitely a change in, in focus, uh, a change in culture of the team, a change in in the standards that we accepted and the the standards that we wouldn't accept in the, in the team, and so that for me is the biggest difference between good and the great. Mm, that's interesting. With the so obviously some some poor not poor experiences, but let's say formative experiences. Mm. I'd imagine there would be a lot of teams that would pass by the wayside, not cashing in on those experiences, so to speak. As the, the captain in 99 and obviously working closely with Rod, is there a way that you actively harnessed those those negative experiences or those tough losses to to serve you better in the future? Yeah, we, we did. And part of it was you focus on it and say, we never want to go back there. But I think you need to 
understand why you were there in the first place. Like it can't just be this passionate, oh, we're not going to lose, we're not going to lose, we're gonna, not going to give in, we're just going to keep fighting. That has some merit, mm. but it only has really valuable merit, maximum merit, if you like, if you can fill in all the reasons why you weren't successful back then. Mm. And for us, it would have been, look, we had Greg Smith as a coach and he was very, very good in some ways and, and we worked hard, but but we probably didn't didn't work as smartly, well, we di- didn't as, as what we did when Rod came in because he had a much um, clearer articulation of, of a plan and what, what the athletes need. And I think also there was this bit of a cultural change as well where... We came through this era where sports science started to come to the fore. And I think in 91, we were at the forefront of some of that. But then sometimes sports science, it, you, the, the, there is a, um, like in, as with most things, there's a bell curve, like the absolute peak of the usefulness of sports science. And then I think if you use too much, mm. you can get to the point where people start using it as an excuse not to do things rather than a way to do things. And we, yeah, some of us, I think, and, and the team in some ways and individuals went over that, that edge of the maximum benefit of sports science. So when Rod came in, in some ways, he had to dumb us down. And in other ways, he had to smarten us up. Mm. And it was knowing where which levers to pull on each of those. So rather than being, you know, guys say, oh, look, I need to freshen up. I need, you know, mm. I've got heavy legs. I'm not mm. going to do it today. Sometimes we just push through that. And, you know, we had a guy, Steve Nance, who had worked with the Broncos. He came in as our fitness trainer and he worked us hard. Like, I, I think we, as I said, we worked really hard with, with Greg Smith and under his regime. I don't think we necessarily worked harder, but, but there was less... Uh, people who'd sit out sessions. Yeah, for sure. Like, okay, if you you, know, you might have you know, 80%, 70%, 80% working, you know, doing everything under Greg, but then there'd be 30%, and then they might play on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden, well, if these guys weren't fit enough to train, well, then, okay, they, they, they have to sit out a couple of games. Mm-hmm. Very quickly, mm-hmm. people were, uh, were were putting in and, and not using science as an excuse anymore. That's a really interesting point. Stephanie Rice tells a very good story about how she uh, won a gold medal in, in Beijing. I think it was the 200 or the 400 IM. She won the gold medal and then she was um, loving life. She had a gold medal around her neck and then a couple of days later she had to back it up with a 400 or vice versa. And she came down with uh, a Beijing illness like many would have. And um, so her warm-up was a mess and the, she scraped through the final. Her warm-up was a mess in the final. And um, she said that there was a moment where she figured, like, look, all my routines are out the window. I feel terrible. I can either perform, I can either try, give it a go, or I can just retire the race and no one would blame me either way. And she ended up winning the race and setting a world record or something like that. And my question to you is, sometimes when teams aren't going so well, in hindsight, people will say, you know, my legs are heavy or um, I just, you know, I wasn't in the right physical prep but um is there a way did you ever feel like that you felt that your legs were heavy before a game or something like that and how did you push through that to oh look i, I think in a in a contact sport like rugby and probably in any every sport because you know some sports there may not be the contact but mm. you're still finely tuned mm. you rarely feel a hundred percent yeah most of the time you're playing with some some ailment of, of some description so um i think a lot of it then if that's the case, like a lot of it is in the mind. Like mm. how, how are you going to push through this? How can you put this out of your mind so you can absolutely perform in the moment? And I, I think it's uh, the people who can take... I mean, ultimately sport is about, and, and performance in life really is about dealing with pressure. And everyone has pressure. But some people are able to remove that pressure from, from the moment for themselves. And... How are they able to do that? Well, that's yeah, you know, that'll be different in different people's circumstances. It's going to be different from a team perspective as it will be from an individual perspective. But I think that that is probably the the greatest gift of experience is being able to develop the art of removing the pressure from a situation. Mm. And and pressure can be a physical pressure. It could be a, a, a mental pressure as well. Mm. One action of yours springs to mind 2000 Bledisloe Cup final um, Sterling Mortlock was the was the kicker he was off 
you had to step up to kick. But I went back and had a look at the footage, actually. And for those of you who don't know, have a look at the footage. But the Wallabies behind by two, three points to seal a Bledisloe win in New Zealand. Um, and it looks a lot like, without hesitation, straight up to the um, uh, the ref, sorry, and said, we'll take the three. And, it, and that's really what it looked like. No hesitation mm. whatsoever. You knew that what you had to do. You knew you had to kick the kick the, the goal. Um, talk to me about the pressure in that situation. Did you feel pressure or? Yeah, of course you feel pressure, but it's, um, I think, yeah, by that stage, I'm 30 year out from retiring. I'd been through these situations a lot of times and, and so not, maybe not quite that big, but, um, you learn, yeah, if you, if you can perform in the, in the, when the pressure's not so, so big and you've got the same processes that get you through there, they'll get you through when you're in those moments. Look, you're right. Like initially I thought, yeah, of course we say we're taking the kick. Mm -hmm. Like there's no other decision to, to make there. Um, but I did think Sterling was still on the field and I didn't realise he'd been taken off. So I'm looking around for him and Jeremy Paul said, mate, Sterling's off. So I knew it was my kick. You know, if I didn't take it, it would have been pretty lame. Um, so, but once, so once that happened, I have a different feeling going through me mm. and it's part excitement because mm. genuinely, like as a kid growing up in the backyard, you, you you do that a thousand times mm. and it's what you dream about. Mm. You, you dream about having that moment in a test match when it's on your head. And, but then like there's that side. So you, you're excited, but you're also, you know, what's at stake. And so you get this rush of adrenaline hormones through, through your body. So I think the key, what I had worked out over, over many years and many years of not being successful in some of those moments uh, you do have to be able to just shut out the occasion. And um, so for me, it's uh, I used to have my, my same routine every time. And you know, I developed this routine early on. Like when I was younger and had the kicking responsibility, I used to sometimes go to bed the night before. And this sounds very weak. It was weak, but I'd go to bed the night before thinking, I hope I don't have a kick to win, to win the game tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then I realized after a while of going into games and you might get the first one and then you get seven out of seven. You might miss the first and you get one out of seven and you have all this great fluctuation. Like, you know, physically you can kick. Mm. That wasn't an issue. You know, you've got a technique, but, but there was something missing in those early stages. And I was probably 21, 22 back then having the odd kick for Queensland and, and stuff. And then pretty quickly I realized I need to you know, develop a routine here because that's what can protect me. And, and so I developed, like I used to do the same thing every time. I would take, line up the ball you know, according to the weather, the wind, whatever. Take three steps back, three steps across, and then say to myself three things. The first one would be head down. When I said head down, I'd pick a specific stitch on the ball. Second one, I'd say slow, because you're never going to go too slow in a game, but you can go too quickly. Mm. So head down, slow, and then the last one would be follow through to the post. And I know that if I did those three things, it's going to go over, should go over 80 to 90% of the time. As soon as you don't do one of those things, maybe it's 50% of the time. Mm. It goes back to a bit of luck, um, luck, chance, or magic that'll, that'll get it over or not. So... But the other thing that that does is it is it takes this big overwhelming here's a kick to win the game, takes it down to this one moment where you can basically uh, say okay it's head down slow follow through to the post I can do that no one can stop me doing that mm-hmm. so then it was up to me mm-hmm. and then you own it again and you're still sort of suppressing all the other emotion but you're doing it in a in a in a manner that you've proven to yourself time and time again. And you, you want to train this because like, and for me it was like, if we just had a heavy scrum session, you know, because of the, you know, you would get more leg heavy in the forwards than you would in the backs. You're doing a lot more scrums, you know, probably heavier leg weights and all that. And, uh, so at the end of a big scrum session, I would often before running over to do line outs or running over to do a team run, I'd just run over and take one or two shots at goal. Mm. Yeah, from wherever on the field, but make sure I could slip straight from a heavy session into two, one, it might only be one, but but a, a perfect routine mm. and ha- having a shot. Mm. And so that's what I started to, to do a lot more of, um, which 
enabled me to practice under certain pressure, mm. but really just reinforce that routine. Mm. I'm going to briefly interrupt John for a second because I have some exciting news. It's finally time to announce the hero of hockey who's the winner of the Voodoo Prize Pack valued at 600 Aussie dollars. Now we started this segment because we know that community hockey is run on the hard work of passionate volunteers and we wanted to give you, the listener, the opportunity to publicly acknowledge them and their contributions to our great sport. Thanks to everyone who wrote in. We've heard some wonderful stories about some great people because of you and I hope you used your Voodoo voucher on something juicy in the store. We're going to try to continue with the segment sporadically, so please keep writing in via our socials and telling us all about the heroes who deserve a mention, and we'll try our very best to give it to them. Now, the winner of the Voodoo prize pack, and I might add this was drawn completely randomly out of my own hat, is Travis Carstens from the Campbelltown Collegian Hockey Club, who I'm pretty sure was our hero of hockey last week with Jane Claxton. Nevertheless, well done, Travis. We'll get in contact with regards to your prize. And thanks again to everyone else who participated. We've absolutely loved hearing your stories and enjoyed doing that segment immensely. Thanks again. Now, let's get back to John. As a captain, obviously, you had responsibilities outside only after only looking after your own game. I mean, um, it's it's controllable what you can do, but... When you're the leader of 15 men who um, who can't necessarily control, how did you see pressure affecting them and did you have any techniques to alleviating the pressure or helping them deal with the pressure? I think the first thing is you need to understand that everyone is different and so everyone will have a different way of letting you in or keeping you out. And, and so once you start to unlock those different ways then you can start to actually deal with people um, you know, as an individual, which is how you get the most out of them. So you would see some people, I mean, some people needed very little help. Like you had a guy like Stephen Larkham, who was just so calm mm. and composed all the time. And yeah, you know, just outstanding football. He'd be relaxed in the corner of the change room. Everyone else is getting hyped up, ready to go. And he's just sort of sitting there very relaxed. You know, he would have his own nerves, but he's, got his own way of dealing with it there's very little anyone can do to help Stephen Larkham in those moments because he's he's in, in control but there might be other guys that you know you can see and you just know that a quiet word with them is is going to be useful mm. and you know some people in in the change room it's such a personal experience in the change room but it's a a group experience as well and you know that there's some people who are really quiet and and you want to leave them as quiet some people talk a lot and you listen to every word they say. Or some people, sorry, won't say much, but you'll listen to every word they say because you know it'll be spot on. Some people talk a lot and you know you won't have to listen to anything they say <laughs> because they'll be talking more for themselves rather than for everyone else. And that's fine too. And so you get this all this group of people that are doing their own things, but working together to do something as a team. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, that acceptance of the individual... Um, an understanding of the individual is really important. Mm. Could you? Did you get to the level where you were able to pick up on when people perhaps weren't um, successfully implementing their own technique to dealing with pressure? Could you see that? Could you feel the change room in that sense? Or I think some people who, yeah, some people you could just sense, particularly the ones you're working closer with in your units and stuff. You could just sense they weren't right, but. I think through those years, and particularly, say, in the latter part of my career, as when I was captain um, from 96, 96, 97, you know, were tougher years, as I mentioned. Then 98, 99, 2000, 2001 were really good years. And part of the reason was there were so many leaders in that team. Mm. Like, everyone was willing to... <clears throat> everyone knew that there was a moment they had to step up. Everyone knew that they had something that they were... Yeah, a, a way in which they were leading the team. Mm. So that's um, yeah, that was really you know, get, getting to know that and knowing you could trust people to to own different parts of the team's performance. And yeah, even but even the greats sometimes you can see they're off their game for for different reasons. So you would be looking and and sometimes they they would pick you up as well. Mm. Mm. And um, 
Look, I remember it's yeah probably slightly off topic here, but in 2000 we were playing South Africa in in Melbourne, and it might have been one of the first of the Mandela plates which we play for now. And my grandmother had passed away through the week, and everyone knew she was Italian. She was almost a week short of 97. But most of the guys in the team had known her. A lot of them had been over for dinner. Mm. They knew how important she was in my life. And so we had been in camp in at Caloundra. Um, I think it was uh, Caloundra. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, we'd been in camp beforehand. And um, uh, maybe it was in Coffs Harbour by that stage. Anyway, it was wherever we were in camp. Um we found, I found out that she was she was dying, and so I went, and they all went to Melbourne, and I stayed in in Brisbane just for an extra day, and flew down after she passed away, and then that that Saturday night at the game, and none of them had said anything, but but I, I saw them all putting you know black armbands on, and I was you know I was sort of wondering, and and George was the vice captain, he said, oh, mate, they're for Nonna, you know my Italian grandmother, and like you. Yeah, in in a, in a sense, they were watching out for me. Mm. Yeah, they knew that. You know, she was someone that I'd grown up with. She lived with me from when I was uh, from when I was born, and was incredibly close to to me and our family. And you know, so having a a team that's really attuned to everyone in in small ways, but really important ways, mm. was something. Uh, yeah, that I think all, each of us were yeah you know, were, were good at in that team. Mm. Sounds like a wonderful team mm. with. Uh, captaincy obviously there's all the preparation you can do before the game um but as we know momentum is a is a funny thing in especially international sport and sometimes without really being able to put your finger on it you can just feel momentum either with you or against you um and again i would say that it's it's everyone's responsibility to try and wrestle that back but perhaps as a captain there's more responsibility to firstly perhaps acknowledge that the momentum is is away from you or with you and um, to address it accordingly. Is that something that you actively thought about in, in your career? Yeah, momentum is a big thing, as you say. And we used to think if it was if it was going for you, you just want to keep it keep mm. it going. But the harder time is when it turns against you and you can feel like you're in this rut and what do we do? And we used to... Yeah, we, we'd plan for these moments. So you plan for when it was going against you, what would you do? And... Yeah, you know, sometimes we'd, we'd basically start any given week doing a really complete analysis of the team we're up against. And then that analysis would would distill down to the tactics, you know, do the broad analysis, okay, then tactically how we're we going to approach this game mm. against this team, what were the key things. And it, in essence, you'd come down, of course, there was the regular skills you had to do, but in essence, you'd come down to we'd try to bring it down to two or three words that were going to be the key words for us that week. And so when it came to the 40 seconds you had, when you're pulling into a huddle just before kickoff, mm. you could talk about either one, two or three of those words in just really brief terms. Mm. And that would give the team a very clear focus. Like it might be one word, but okay, that's a very clear focus for how we want to play the game or, or switch on. So that became very useful in these moments in a game where things were turning against you. You could you could just bring it back down to one quick focus because you don't have time to workshop mm. things when you're out there on the field. You have to be able to to act really quickly and to give some guidance really quickly. So I think a lot of things which look natural out on the field have been <clears throat> manufactured, manufactured, manufactured in pre-production before you get before you get out there. Mm. So it looks normal. It looks like it just flows. But there's been so much thought and effort put into that. So if you... you know, and sometimes it just needs the simplest message. Like it might be as simple as, you know, uh, what, what are we... I'm just trying to think of a word. We might have had this 20 years ago, Tom. So we've <laughs> got to go back. But, but one might have been <coughs> hang. You know, and the word might have been hang. And that would have been to talk about Make sure we we come from depth, or um, when we're that we're not just all running flat. Mm. That when we're following, we're following from depth in behind. So that gives people plenty of options. Mm. Or it might be channels. So we want to drive through particular channels in the field mm. in a, in a big way. So um, 
I'm just trying to think. One might be, you know, I forget what it might have been. Big, you know, start again or build. Build was one actually. And so if you might have just scored a try, you know, you got seven points against the All Blacks, but that's not worth a lot. Mm. You know, that can be uh, lost pretty quickly. So we'd come back and the, the call would be build around the team. And build meant you go back to your basic structures. You work hard again. It's nil all. You know, you've just got to start as if you're starting the game again. So you don't lose that advantage you've just created. And I think also sometimes when things are going terribly wrong, and I think back to a game in 2000 in Sydney, the Bledisloe Cup game, and there was a world record crowd. Uh, it was one of the test events before the Olympics in 2000. So there was just short of 110,000 people at the stadium. Um, so massive crowd. And the first eight minutes of the game, we're down by 24 points to nil. Mm. Now that's a, that's, that's a disaster. And I remember being behind the goals that day and you're thinking, what the hell do we say? You know, but, you know this could be my last test for the Wallabies and um, could be a few of our last tests you know, if we don't change this. And I just remember saying, okay, guys, we've just got to, we, we hadn't held the ball. Get the ball, hold it and move towards their line. <laughs> and, you know, we had to get it as simple as that. And we did that in the next play pretty much or pretty soon afterwards. And Stephen Larkin, a bit of magic, got a pass away to Sterling Mortlock, big gap. He ran 40 metres and scored. And all of a sudden we were back in and that momentum changed and shifted because we're able to just focus on the basics and one simple thing. Mm. And then it was 24 all at half time, and then we were leading with two minutes to go and Jonah Lomu scores a try in the <laughs> in the dying minutes. But... I actually, um, that game touted the game of the century, I think, actually. I remember I actually watched it. I've seen it a few times. <laughs> yeah. But I remember I watched it a couple of months ago just because it, it popped up somewhere on Fox Sports or whatever. Mm. Unbelievable game of sport. Yeah. Phenomenal game of sport. Um, that's cool having some insight into into how you come back to 24. I mean, that's that's not a situation that anyone wants to be in. Or perhaps you do want to be in that situation just so you can show oh. you can you can claw your way. Yeah, no, you never you never seek to be in those situations. <laughs> you, you're pleased when you can get in them and get out of them mm. as quickly as possible. But uh, yeah, look, that was that was pretty grim. And mm. uh, but but look, I remember walking off the field at the end of that game. And you knew that you had been part of something special. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just know that. And we had lost, but you didn't walk off the field feeling like a loser. Like mm. the scoreboard said, we did not win that game. But there was this this incredible feeling of belief mm. in that team through that era. And everyone was down in the mm. shed, of course. Mm. But there was also this bit of electricity there as well where people were really proud of what we had done mm. and they were proud of the game that we had just been a part of. Mm. And, you know, I'd rather have played a game like that and lost than never to have played that game. Yeah, for sure. Talking of uh, formative experiences, we've spoken a bit about um, some as a team um, and I want to talk a little bit about some for you personally, um, incredibly successful captain and athlete, but I want to talk about some of the times where it perhaps didn't go right maybe earlier in your career, um, perhaps times where you didn't handle the pressure well. Can you remember any of those? Yeah, there, there were a lot of those. And I, I think, um, yeah, I think I gave the example earlier of kicking. Um, and that was always like something that I was very inconsistent at. I had to had to work very hard at. I think coming back from injuries was, mm. you know, was difficult. I had you know, a couple of rotated cuff repairs, which were major injuries and coming back, like getting the confidence to to be yourself. And I think also particularly, uh, I think when I was initially captain, like we really struggled uh, you know, through some um, tough times. And I, you know, I got some great advice going to be captain. And I said, look, just be yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think we were talking the other day and you said, you've, you've heard that advice from a number of people, but... I got this great advice from people, but ultimately try to be a little bit of that person, mm. a little bit of that person, a little bit of that person. And and you do have these little mini crises of confidence. And like I always thought that it was something I never coveted being captain of the Wallabies, but when the opportunity came, I, I really embraced it. Mm. I don't think I was very good at it initially. and But I, I think being not very good at it and working my way through that 
um, with support of different people, people in inside and outside uh, rugby, um, some great friends and people who were willing to tell me what I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear. Uh, were you know through that period of time, it was it really helped me a lot along the journey and. Uh, you know, some people left of centre that, that really challenged me. Um, and and I think hearing that from, from people made a difference. Mm-hmm. I just want to move on to, um, well, I guess segue to the amateur versus professional sporting side of things because mm. you, you worked and lived through an era um, which perhaps hockey finds itself in now. Um, different circumstances. Obviously, we don't have the big financial backing that was pushed towards rugby's way but um, I just want to talk about your experience with changing from shifting that landscape basically um, can you talk a little bit about that do you remember what it was like the change oh look I remember this time so clearly because uh, it, it was a difficult time too because like half my career was as an amateur and half as a professional and I'm so pleased to have had both those experiences and really pleased to have been involved in that transition mm. not because the transition was easy it was welcome but it wasn't easy because you had to fight against, there were fights between establishment and a rebel rugby corporation coming in. Yeah, there was there was difficulties with some teammates who, you know, maybe some towards the end of their career, some who really were feeling they were missing out, some who wanted money but not accountability, mm. um, some who, you know, whereas you, you were in this environment where everyone got the same, nothing. And then all of a sudden they were going to start valuing people at different levels and people who are putting in the same effort. But that was an adjustment to Mm. make uh, for for some people. And some people didn't see that as being right, but I I think it was just a reality Mm. of what we were going through. But, but some of the, so some of the personal issues through that time were really difficult. I found, and you're young, you're inexperienced Commercially, you're naive. Uh, you're signing confidentiality agreements, and you're petrified. You can lose everything. <laughs> Not that I had anything to lose at that at that point in time. So there were things. You know, it was. You know, you take them very literally, and so I wasn't even talking to my parents about mm. about some of these really big things that were going on. And they were, like I know now as a parent, how uh, hard that can be. Mm. Not. Um, having kids that are communicating with you and you know that they're going through some tough times, you, you wish that they would communicate with you. But mum and dad were very, very good at you know, just letting me be and letting me find my own way if, I, if that's what I wanted. You could see they were almost bursting to come out and wanting to, wanting to help or listen or understand a bit more. And I knew they were always there, but, uh, but I also felt I just, you know, here were things I just had to, had to deal with myself. So... It was difficult and people might think, oh, look, how can it be difficult? You're going from earning nothing to earning good wages, um, sports turning professional. But there, there were a lot of battles through that time. And you know, I'm sure some people said things through that time that they'd, they'd regret to this day. But uh, it, it, it was difficult. And then just adjusting to the new level of accountability that, that people had. But what where I really um, what I really valued through that time was seeing some people, and my second row partner at the time was Rod McCall, and he he was a guy that was towards the end of his career. He wasn't going to reap the benefits of professionalism, mm. but he worked really hard to to drive the game to professional to to be a professional game, and it was that selflessness of people of that generation that I think was really important in driving, driving it. And then you have the challenges when you, when you do get through, you know that you want some things to mean exactly the same. You want it to mean exactly the same for someone to pull on a Jersey as a, as a professional, as it did when, when, Mm. when they were, when, when the sport was amateur. And, and so we were conscious of that. And we tried to introduce a few things like, we invited a classic Wallaby to come and present the jerseys before every game. And they'd talk about what it meant for them to play for the Wallabies. And that reminded guys that they weren't just this moment in time, that even though it was professional, you were representing a hundred years of history before you. And, and you know, all the, you know, and you're the ones who are 
paving the way for all the people who will come after you. So there were some challenges in that time. Mm. Mm. I find it fascinating. We were speaking before about how fiercely amateur rugby was. I mean, you could not earn a cent in any way. Yeah. Well, when I first started, it started to relax in a few ways, but if you went and spoke at something, you weren't allowed to earn money. So you'd, you'd end up with the bottle of scotch and the crystal glasses uh, but you weren't allowed to get paid for it. And then it started to... Re- you weren't allowed to get paid from anything that was remotely connected to, to your sport. Mm. So if you wrote a book, you weren't allowed to get paid for that. And then they started to relax and saying you could earn money from things outside of playing the game. Mm. And and that started to build. And then, it, But it wasn't until 1996, 1995, after the World Cup in South Africa, where they came out and said... Yeah, this I think the official statement from World Rugby or uh, International Rugby Board at that stage, as they were known, was rugby is now an open game, mm. and that's they, they couldn't even use the word professional, <laughs> I think, and uh, so then the the doors were open, and mm. it was just a free for all after that. Mm. Did you find that um, the different was there ever a notably different incentive to playing rugby for the Wallabies? Did anyone kind of come in in that later era where growing up as it was a professional sport, the incentive was more financial than the honour of putting on the the yellow jersey? Because it's a special thing doing it for for nothing, doing it only because it means so much versus nowadays it obviously means a a lot, but it also means thousands of dollars in the job. Exactly. Mm. Um, Did people's attitude shift at all? I think it didn't shift immediately. I mean, ultimately, it was going to shift. Look, and I, it would it would be wrong to assume that it means any less for someone pulling on the gold jersey now. I don't believe that it does. I think it's exactly the same. Mm. But because it's so clearly their job, whereas when I came through, you had life outside of rugby. And even when I was professional, I had life outside of rugby. So for me, it was never... It, was, it became a career... But it was never what I wanted to do forever. Mm. So, um, whereas these guys coming in now, they know, okay, it's a career and they they need to maximise it. And so I think there is a bit of a different mentality. And so you see a lot more people leaving to play overseas earlier mm. because the money can be greater overseas mm. for them. And you know, the, once it turned professional, you're, you're going to get that. Yeah, you know, it's not like rugby league and AFL where if you're the best player in the world, you're getting paid the most to play in the Australian competition. Mm. You know, in rugby, you can get paid well to play you know, for Australia and in Australia, but you can probably get paid better and sometimes significantly better to go to Japan, to go to France, to go to England, to go to Ireland, uh, you know, a number of places. So you know, once the genie was out of the bottle with professionalism, you were never going to, it's a bit like catching the wind. Yeah. You were never going to stop that happening. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot more guys go at a younger age now because they see it as their career. Yeah. And while it would mean exactly the same for them to play for Australia, maybe their priorities are not to play for Australia as long. I mean, when I came through, I had three teams, Brothers Rugby Club in Brisbane, the Queensland Reds and the Wallabies. Yeah. And I didn't, like I played for a few barbarians teams around the place, French barbarians, British barbarians, New Zealand barbarians, Australian barbarians. So invitation games here and there, they love playing in them and it really opened up the world. But I had no desire to go overseas and play for another club. Like, and I see why people did have desire, Mm. but it just wasn't part of my makeup. I, I would have found it very hard to manufacture the same feelings playing for another club as I had playing for those three. And and so it was an easy decision for me not to go at the end of my career. Mm. Setting the premise for my next question, hockey kind of finds itself at a at a crossroad, a long crossroads. Perhaps it'll go either way. We don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, is there anything you would have done differently at that junction of amateur to professional that can serve as perhaps advice to to hockey players who find themselves in a similar state? Yeah, rugby didn't start from a blank sheet of paper. And, and, and so, and, and like hockey at the moment, but so when the money came in, it came in at different levels in different parts of the world. 
from different organizations wanting different things. And so it became this land grab. And, it, you know, in some places it was the clubs that, that had the more power. In Australia it was, you know, for, from a national perspective and same in New Zealand. But so we tended to then create structures that were around here, was around national and then interstate, which, um, you know, provincial. So Queensland, New South Wales, Brumbies came in as a more, as a higher, you know, as a, as a team that was exposed to that higher level as well. Um, and look, that worked from our perspective because there was some control, but it made it difficult for the club club rugby then to have the same presence uh, as it did, did did beforehand. So it's it's imperfect. I think if I was to give advice to hockey, it's when if professionalism comes in a big way, then you need to start with a blank sheet of paper and it needs to be a global blank sheet of paper. Because at the moment, even now, rugby hasn't, it's sort of got a global season, but it, it doesn't really have a natural flow to the, to the, to the global calendar. Mm. It's trying to fix that, but it, it's fixing it in between things that are very fixed and rigid and no one wants to move and no one wants to give away their power. The French competition doesn't want to give away the top 14 or, or doesn't want to compromise what they do there. And you understand that. Uh, but then Australia doesn't want to compromise. You've got some people that don't want to compromise Shoot Shield and the Hospitals Cup in, in New South Wales and Queensland, and other people that don't want to compromise Super Rugby, which is mm. you know, being reinvigorated at the moment. But if you could start with a blank sheet of paper across the whole landscape of the sport, then you could come up with something where everyone can have a seat at the table and it can be more meaningful. Mm. Uh, and, actually, and actually, it's been constructed in the new environment, whereas we've put a lot of band-aids on. Mm, mm. Hope the administrators have a, have a chance to listen to the podcast because that sounds like <laughs> sage advice. Um, you've been very generous with your time um, and thanks very much for talking. I typically end the podcast with a couple of quick questions. Sure. Um, and usually they're about the best hockey player you've ever played with, but that's <laughs> probably not going to apply. But my two questions are, um, and I know this will be tough for you having played with so many people, but is there a, a teammate that you admire immensely that perhaps hasn't had the, um, the credit in the media that we might know about that they deserve? And who is it and why? Uh, well, they might have had the credit. Yeah, sure. yeah. Look, I think there's a saying in rugby that the most important person in a team is the tight head prop. <laughs> and the second most important is the reserve tight head prop. And it says a lot about our sport that 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 saying, and because what it what it what it says is that it's a genuine team game, and the tight head prop rarely will get the coverage or you know the accolades that anyone else in the team will get. Most of the great work they do is done undercover, mm. and uh, but but everyone in the team knows, or certainly everyone in the forwards knows, what that guy does. Mm. And I played with some great tight head props over the years, and and some that haven't had the accolades. There might have been a Ewan McKenzie or a Andrew Blades or a Dan Crowley. They were just would they, they were masters at the dark arts of what they had to do, mm. and, and they got their job done. And they rarely seeking the glory. I mean, now we've got a guy called Taniella Tupo, Tong and Thor, as he's known, and like he can do everything. <laughs> he's such an anomaly in that position. He could almost play in the backs. He's he's quick. He's incredibly skillful. He can he can he can do everything. That's generally not the mode of a tight head prop. Mm. Tight head prop has one job that's just so important, and mm. and it needs to be done every single time. So, look, I, I think you know if you could uh, raise a glass to if anyone in rugby has to raise a glass to anyone to say thank you, it's probably to the tight head props all around the world. It's <laughs> a good answer. Last question. Um, let's pretend that you're back in your athlete liaison officer role um, and you're about to address a team or an individual athlete who is going to go out, let's pretend you're in the back room and they ask you for one piece of advice. Is there a universal piece of advice that you would give to someone who's about to embark on that journey? Look, I I think it's... um, It'd be something around them clearing their head and trusting themselves that 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 that, that'd be the thing because if they're if they're at the olympics they've done a a hell of a lot of work 
they're, they've got the talent. They've got a hell of a lot of talent. They've done a hell of a lot of work. So I suppose in, the, in those final minutes that you've got to work, you know, work with them, have a chat, it's giving them the courage, the confidence that they should have faith in themselves and trust, trust the work they've done, trust the process they've been tr- through, trust their teammates around them and trust themselves. Brilliant. Leave it there. Thanks, John. No worries, Tom. It's a pleasure. That's it for another episode of The Help Side. Special thanks to my production team of David Moore and Tim Collier, plus countless others working behind the scenes to get this to you. You're the real MVPs. Again, if you're liking the show, please like, subscribe, you know the drill, and get in touch with us via our socials. We would love to hear from you. Anyway, that's all, folks. See you next week.